I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Evening and welcome to the still online London Review Bookshop. I'm Sam Kitchen-Smith, LRB's Head of Special Projects, and I'm delighted to introduce tonight's speakers. Paul Gilroy, Professor of Humanities at UCL, author of foundational books, including There Ain't No Black in the Union Jack and Darker Than Blue, Holberg Prize Laureate, and according to a recent Guardian piece, The Most Vital Guide to Our Age of Crisis, and Adam Schatz, the LRB's US editor, author of recent LRB pieces you'll no doubt have read on Edward Said and the Algerian War, and a forthcoming book about Fanon. They'll be discussing William Gardner Smith's 1963 novel, The Stone Face, recently reissued by New York Review Books, with a new introduction by Adam, which you can buy from the bookshop uh, using the link lrb.me forward slash stone. Over to you, Adam. Thanks so much, Sam, and uh, it's great to be here with you, Paul. Yeah, I'm so excited that this book has come back into print. It really is a dream come true for me. Well, I mean, you were one of the first uh, people I knew of to, uh, to 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 write about the book. And, and a, a couple of days ago, uh, you sent me uh, an article that William Gardner Smith published in Ebony uh, about uh, Richard Wright. Gardner Smith was a, a journalist, uh, besides being a novelist, and came to Paris in the early 50s. And the friend did right. And there's a passage uh, in that interview that, that, that really struck me. Wright is uh, quoted saying, the break from the United States was more than a geographical change. It was a break with my former attitudes as a Negro and a communist, an attempt to think over and, and, and redefine my attitudes and my thinking. I was trying to grapple with the big problem, the problem and meaning of Western civilization as a whole, and the relation of Negroes and other minority groups to it. Now, uh, Wright was not the only person uh, to do that. I mean, as you've known in books like uh, The Black Atlantic and Between Camps, many thinkers of The Black Atlantic were trying to do the same thing. Um, uh, Fanon, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois. Uh, and of course, Gardner Smith fits into this story uh, because of this yeah. novel and also because of his first novel, Last of the Conquerors, published when he was 22 years old, just out of the army. Uh, he'd been in Germany. And so I wanted to, to, to start, Paul, by asking you uh, how it is you came to discover the stone face, which 
you know, was beyond obscure. It was, you know, by the time you stumbled upon it, it was virtually unknown except to people who were really specialists in African-American literature. Hmm. Well, I mean, obviously, the, the piece you mentioned from Ebony in um, 953, uh, Wright's sort of pompous claim is sort of somewhat undermined by the beautiful photograph of the Wrights sitting down for their six-course evening meal with their children and being served <laughs> by one of their two, we're told, French maids who's providing <laughs> who's providing um, uh, this extraordinary feast, you know, at a time when rationing and the war and the memory of all of that, the culture of food and deprivation is still a feature of everyday life for so many people. I, I think I learned that, I learned about William Gardner Smith as a novelist from Bill French, who used to run the old university place bookstore in Manhattan. And that was a place where people used to buy books, um, you know, and uh, black books, books that chronicled the, or, the shop itself with its sort of decaying roof and broken window frames was a kind of incredible archive of a black intellectual life. And I think it was Bill who had mentioned that he was more than a journalist. When I was doing Black Atlantic, I found that piece and I'd mentioned it. Bill said, well, you know, he was a novelist. And um, Michael Denning, another colleague and a friend, had told me about Last of the Conquerors. So I got that first. And I've been thinking about the liberation of European concentration camps by African-American and, Af uh, and uh, Japanese-American soldiers who uh, wrote interesting things. I think I've come across a film by Bill Miles and Nina Rosenblum called Liberators. And I've been in the Fortune of Archive at Yale looking at the video recordings of uh, Jewish camp inmates who had been liberated by African-American soldiers. And uh, I think, you know, Tadeusz Borowski, the Polish writer, not Jewish, Jewish communist writer, had the same experience. One of his most extraordinary short stories is about that encounter. And I was author, very... This is the author of, uh, of uh, The Next to the Gas Chambers. Yes, This this Way to the Gas. This uh, Way to the Gas. Ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Well, uh, so I, was, I, I guess I was really interested in the, in, the, in the shame involved. And that's where I was. And then I found... Um, I found Last of the Conquerors, you know, in its one of its pulp fiction incarnations of the particularly kind of lurid and how shocking in some ways kind of cover. And there was this sort of immensely serious and interesting attempt to place these histories of horror, of brutality, of cruelty in some sort of moral and literary, cultural, historical relation with one another. It was the most extraordinary thing. Uh, and it was that encounter that led me to Gardner Smith's life and to this book, The Stone Face, which really develops the themes and questions that are coming out of Last of the Conquerors in a, in a you know, a much more sustained and thoughtful way. And I was, um, I was kind of astonished by it. I think there's some, you know, literary limitations or whatever, but I, I was just so happy to discover this that there that there was a, a, you know, such a sort of complete pursuit of these questions at such a difficult time to be asking questions about, you know, October, October 17th, October 17th, October 17th in, in Paris, this extraordinary pogrom where, you know, people have been writing about Papon's trial, I think, um, Alan Finkelkraut and others have been writing about Papon's trial. But I certainly didn't know that there was an African-American uh, writer who was prepared to take possession of those events, to use them to complicate and trouble the understanding of that sort of history of 20th century horror, 
And so it was it was a, it was a revelation. And 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 the more I learned about Gardner Smith, the more excited I was. And of course, the 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 dimensions and the, the meaning of the horror of those events in Paris as we approach the 60th anniversary is not something that can be said to have been completely assimilated, although uh, I understand that um, this book, The Stone Face, has finally now been published in French. So, so it'll be interesting to see what that was. So when I was writing Between Camps, I had seen some of the things in Liberation. NOD had gone and interviewed survivors. From the, uh, you're, the, you're, talking about, you're, you're talking about the, the, the journalist and historian uh, Jean-Luc Enaudi, yes, the Battle of Paris, La, La, La Bataille de Paris, about the, mm-hmm. about the map, which was a very important book uh, about the October events. Yeah, and, and so I, and I was really, again, astonished by the, the testimony of the survivors of that, of that event. And it just seemed so important to be able to make a different, a slightly different map of this period in which events that were being conducted in Paris, which were so connected both to the history of Europe um, that was proximate and to the history of the French empire at that time, and to, and to, and to show the, the kind of um, precision and thoughtfulness with which a black writer would enter that very difficult territory. Mm. Yeah, and you know, the, although the book is, uh, you know, as I think you suggested, didactic in, in some ways. Uh, it's also very evocative uh, of that period, the beginning of the of the new wave, the cafe scenes, jazz. Um, Gardner Smith was a journalist, and he noticed a lot. So it it is very it is a novel that is full of Parisian life and 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 full of affection. For Paris, even as it carries out a kind of dismantling of some of France's foundational myths, above all the myth of colorblind France. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think it captures the the delicacy of that in in the same way that he does in his earlier book, in the Berlin book, because he's got a range of different African American voices who are all responding at different intensities, at different frequencies, to the promise and the problems involved in in their French dwelling, to the political choices and um, conflicts that arise within that community, which is very much in the sort of cutting edge of, of Cold War politics. I'm, I've never really been able to understand exactly who's spying on who when we go to the archive to think about it. And of course, that story is still um, incomplete, I think, because you know, one one person who denied for many years and won a lawsuit over the fact that they'd been accused of being a CIA agent seems to have been uh, inadvertently outed as a CIA agent by, you're, you're, by President you're, you're, Trump you're, quite recently. You're referring to Richard Gibson, I think. I am, yes. I, I was just a little bit tentative because I wasn't sure what, I mean, given the, the history of litigation in that in that story, you know, I wasn't sure how how moribund that had, had become after the Trump uh, administration disclosed that he was, in fact, in the pay of the CIA in a later period. So the, the the density with which the Cold War is being played out in these rooms, in these cafes, in these restaurants, in these clubs, you know, is is another rather forbidding element in the in the story that that Gardner Smith kind of alludes to here. I mean, the Cold War, of course, had been the defining obsession and preoccupation of that of the black uh, expatriate or exile scene around the Cafe Monaco and the Cafe de Tournon, where Richard Wright was, you know, the king. Of course, Chester Himes was there. Baldwin passed through it in the late 1940s and wrote his famous critiques of, of, of Richard Wright's work. 
and, and there were there were many others. Ollie Harrington, uh, the famous uh, black cartoonist, cartoonist yeah. uh, who who is I think uh, the character Babe in this novel, and yeah. who eventually uh, got so freaked out by the atmosphere of Cold War paranoia that he uh, he took refuge in East Germany and spent his yeah. last days. Uh, in East Berlin. I think he went there in, in 1961. Yeah. So the, the Cold War, of course, is, is uh, present um, in this novel. And there's, in fact, a very uh, entertaining monologue about Khrushchev being seen as a black man uh, by American right-wing anti-communists. And yet at the same time, you feel the presence um, and emergence of a new set of political questions around the the rise of, of what was then known as the third world, around national liberation movements, Algeria, yeah. uh, the murder of Patrice Lumumba comes Lumumba. into this. Yeah. Also exactly. in, a, in quite a striking way, because uh, the stone face, you know, originally is an allusion to the face of anti-black hatred in the United States. But in the course of this novel, the stone face comes to allude to the Nazi, uh, the, the Nazis in the camps, to uh, French police killing Algerian demonstrators. And even, he says at one point, to the uh, Congolese who murdered Patrice Lumumba. It's become yeah. a metaphor of brutality and murder. Yeah, I mean, that was a, a very striking, uh, striking passage. Uh, it precedes the bit that I want to read later on. There's, I think there's another thread that's important here, too. Uh, you, you've talked about the Cold War. You've talked about the um, the unfolding uh, wars of decolonization as a feature of that, but also as a, as a separate phenomenon that's unfolding during this period. Let's remember that um, in the 17th of October, when the um, Algerians who'd been rounded up and placed in the stadium um, for initial detention and um, uh, triage or whatever the uh, correct um, word is, you know, I mean, three days later, that space were being, was being used for a concert by Ray Charles. Indeed. And if you look at Ray Charles' autobiography, Brother Ray, he says how freaked out he was to be in Paris because he knew about the Algerian wars in full blast and bombs were exploding all over town. But the Algerians had sent a note to my promoter saying there'd be no bombings on my route from my hotel to the concert. Tell Brother Ray not to worry, they said, and I didn't. Says Rachel. So, so there's another layer, which is that the kind of immediate cleaning up aesthetically, culturally, uh, that was being done by African Americans in the context of uh, post-war uh, Europe is is actually entering a new phase. And actually, the figure of Ray Charles is sort of pivotal in that in that larger mm. cultural engagement with um, what do we call it? The um, not 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 soft power, something like African American culture on its governmental mm. travels during the period. Sure, sure. When you had all those jazz ambassadors, uh, Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong, others. I mean, I want to underline how extraordinary it is that that Gardner Smith captures uh, the events of, of October 17 uh, in this novel and does so with, I mean, amazing repertorial accuracy. I mean, he must have been a witness uh, because, well, I mean, I became interested uh, in this novel while I was doing a bit of research uh, a decade or so ago about October 17 and reading Jean-Luc Enaudie and, and others. And I was curious what kind of fictional representations there were of the massacre. Obviously, there was um, there yeah. was Michael Hanukkah's uh, film uh, Cachet, which is about the repressed memory of October 17. 
there was a, a very interesting film, a, a, a documentary, almost a, a Chris Marker-like documentary called October à Paris, uh, October in Paris, made by Jacques Panigel um, and released in early 1962. And, and that grew out of work among left-wing militants who wanted to keep alive the memory of October yeah. uh, 61. But um, the first novel to, to to deal with this subject in French was Didier Denanx's book, Meurtre mm -hmm. pour Mémoire, Murder in Memoriam, which was, yeah. it wasn't published until the, the mid-1980s. Um, yeah. It was just really exceptional that, that, that Gardner Smith even wrote about it. And it's striking that he uh, refers to it taking place on October 1st. Uh, 1961, not October 17. I mean, perhaps it was just a careless error or a typo, or maybe mm -hmm. this was his effort to conceal what he was writing about. In any case, it was the only one of his books that was not translated into French in his lifetime. I mean, I mean Gardner Smith was very much a part of French life. In some ways, he was more a part of French media life than other writers living in Paris at the time because he was with Agence France Presse, he was on TV, he talked about, he was a representative of, of Black American fiction, often spoke about Black American politics, um, and yet this one novel did not appear. And, and mm -hmm. I think that's quite remarkable. So for him to have written about this was in some ways an act of, it was a very gutsy act. Yes. Yes, he he's he seems to have been incredibly brave um, to do this. Although, again, in a way, I don't think he could have helped himself because he's not, in a sense, he's not a reporter. In he he's he's doing this in a sense for his own benefit and for the enrichment, for the enrichment of the of the moral imagination of African Americans and diasporic Africans who you know have just been gathering in Paris for the first couple of times in the uh, conferences of 56 and 59. I, I haven't checked his, whether he attended those events, but I mean, I'm sure he must have been implicated in the in the sort of swirl, intellectual swirl around them. And, and again, I think these are events, although uh, selections from both were published in Présence Africaine, these are not events that are part of the kind of uh, common history of, uh, of, of African diasporic cultural and political life and they and they really should be you know because the presentations made controversially by Wright and Fanon but many many others actually many many others um with with different political takes and different uh cultural proclivities you know um are are still an extraordinary record of of the development of these things in the, in the 20th century. I mean, Sinclair Drake, who attended uh, this and, and want to, I think speaks of this period as, as the absolute peak moment of this Pan-African project of the 20th century. And it's clear that Gardner Smith is someone who, who understands that uh, importance and wants to kind of augment it by, by suggesting ways in which we can see these, these things not as, not as um, discrete histories, um, but as things that are, you know, empirically and morally connected to one another. Yes, the, the detail of that final um, section of the book, where he's processing the, the events themselves, is 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 preceded by his epiphany that really this face that he keeps encountering is this universal human um, human phenomenon. Now, they're connecting these histories, and yet they're also, I mean, in some ways, they also they also collide and, and require yeah. tough choices. You mentioned uh, Baldwin earlier. 
uh, you mentioned the, the, the 1956 Présence Africaine Conference, and he, he, of course, reported on that. But, you know, and it's quite an interesting piece because at that time, uh, Baldwin was very insistent on his Americanness and, and what, what differentiated him from the Africans and West Indians mm-hmm. that he heard. And he's quite skeptical um, in that essay. And it's only later that he begins to really grapple with what connects him uh, to um, people in the uh, in, in colonial countries and, and French subjects and so on. But not in 56. And, mm-hmm. you know, Gardner Smith, Gardner Smith's character, Simeon Brown, has to make some difficult choices. And, uh, you know, when he's confronted uh, by the Algerian question. Um, mm-hmm. he, there's an Algerian and, you know, he gets into a scuffle um, mm-hmm. early in the novel with a, a man who turns out to be Algerian. In a scene that, that, that strikes Simeon as utterly surreal, the police side with him, not with the Algerian. Um, the Algerian is, is, is tossed into the back of a police wagon and driven off, and he's, he's, he's benefiting from a kind of special status, almost from a kind of white privilege uh, in France as a black American. Yeah. And yeah. His and his uh, his black American friends at the cafes like um, uh, Babe and, and various writers are very discouraging when he talks about the Algerians and compares their situation to that of uh, black people um, in American cities. Um, they don't want to get involved. They don't want to get mixed up. I mean, they have very good reasons, of course. They don't want to be expelled from France. But in order to solidarize with these Algerians, he has to disaffiliate from his quote unquote brothers. And, yeah. and that, that's a, that's, it's a, it's, it's a real ethical quandary in the novel and it provides the novel with its dramatic point of tension, I think. Yeah. I, I think he, he's sort of, if I'm right, and I don't, I, I mean, there's only that one rather inadequate biography of him available that I know of anyway. And I suppose I think because he'd already had his passport confiscated, Hmm. I, I mean, I think maybe that was the that may have yeah. enabled him to to be bolder. His condition, um, of, his condition of statelessness, because he, yeah. I think he made one yeah. trip to Berlin. Yeah, yes. So, so maybe that that helps to kind of account for it. But he, every opportunity he has to take the easy, uh, to make the easy road, to take the easy choice, he he declines it. You know, and there must be something, something pushing that. There must be something driving that that's interesting because it's not it's a didactic book aesthetically but i don't think it's politically didactic because Mm. he doesn't really know where this relationship with algeria where this relationship with the violence of the french colonial enterprise come home into into policing not not into war but in only but into into policing into torture i mean the the you know the harrowing scene where the algerian women recount the, the the nature of the sexual tortures practiced upon them by the French um, counterinsurgency, you know, this is all this is all extremely difficult and extremely um, important actually for us today when we return to try and read this book and and find what can be useful in it in some you know different circumstances that but ones which in their own ways repeat some of the hard questions that Gardner Smith seems to want us to. I want, to, I, want, I want to pause for a moment to talk about that that scene with the two Algerian women, because mm-hmm. I with uh, Jamila and Latifa, who he's brought yes. to, to meet by his friend Ahmed, who's a young Kabyle intellectual who describes himself as a bourgeois intellectual, and it ends up going to join the Maquis in Algeria. Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's an amazing scene, not least because the account of the torture is so graphic and so close to what would only become much later known about mm -hmm. French practices of torture. There had been, of course, Henri Alleg's book, uh, The mm -hmm. Question, which was suppressed. Mm -hmm. um, Fanon had written about uh, the tortures of yeah. Algerians um, in The Wretched of the Earth. Pierre Vidal Naquet had written about mm -hmm. torture and torture in the Republic. And yet, not much was known particularly about the torture, the sexual torture of women, the rape of women uh, with broken bottles, for example, which is des mm. described in, in this book. It's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a shocking scene, and he writes about the fact that the women do not want to be in the room when that story is being recounted, which I think also touches upon the question of the memory of torture in Algeria, where very little was said about that subject for years because of the shame. Yeah, I mean, this, this is a number of places in the book where Gardner Smith, you know, seems to be someone who's struggling to integrate uh, his intuitions about the place of gender and gendered violence, of male violence, in the formation and reproduction of this this face and the mentalities and institutions that foster it and uh, use it in, in, in police, in war, in the maintenance of, um, of segregated dwelling in US cities and, and the other examples that he gives. And I think there are a number of places in the book where that erupts into the text. And I mean, I don't, I feel this is maybe one element in the book which is not as fully realized as, as we might want it to be, but I do think it's there, and it's incredibly important to see that there that his his mind is is open to these things, and he's he's in in a way um, unable to resolve what that brand of cruelty of violence, uh, what those habits bring to his wider understanding of the processes that are unfolding around him. Because there is a somewhat guilty, almost Freudian confession at the beginning of the novel where yep. Simeon Brown, the, the, the yep. protagonist, is reflecting on his own participation in sexual violence uh, yep. as an adolescent. And, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a very strange um, anecdote because it just, it's, sort of, it's there and it's not really commented upon and we don't exactly know what the connection is to the stone face and the rest of the novel. But we know that this continues to, to burden him on some level. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, what, I've, I've taught this book a few times and uh, I've, always, I've always struggled with those, uh, those, that section of it. Although I suppose I've, I, I began to think, first of all, the discourse of African-American family pathology hadn't yet been articulated from within the, the center of the U.S. government. And a book which is so focused, so uh, engaged with the question of what, after all, is it to be a man in opposition to these processes of racialization? He, it, it seems that he he isn't content with looking at the acquisition of that thwarted masculinity only in relation to the oppressors. You know, there is a sort of Fanonian strand of of the of the uh, of this that relates to gender relations, which is. Um, I suppose, actually, to be generous to him, involves the, the, a stronger sense of the entanglement of these 
uh, of dimensions. And, and in terms of Simeon's own character in the novel, it's very uh, striking, I think, that Gardner Smith says something like, well, to the other boys, it wasn't rape, but to Simeon, it was rape. Yes, you know, this yes. was rape, Simeon. And I think what we've been given there is some kind of um, attunement to the particular sensibilities of Simeon. I'm trying to remember whether he's been blinded at that point. I don't think he has been. Uh, certainly, I mean, there are obvious things to say about the, the blinding and the forms of um, sight which are acquired in the loss of that eye. Um, but but there is an attempt here to to tell us at that very early point, at that adolescent point, that we're dealing with somebody who's a, a different kind of, of man mm -hmm. who recoils mm -hmm. in some way from from mm -hmm. this violence and 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 from the incorporation of these women and girls into their own sort of immiseration that he describes. Right. And, and we do know that that Gardner Smith himself as a young man in Philadelphia um, was brutalized in a police station when I think he was yeah. 14 or 15 years old. Yeah, um, he right. was very familiar with with that kind of violence. Yeah. Well, it, the other um, novel, South Street, has got some um, material that relates to that, I think. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, one of the, you know, I think one of the things this novel also do, does very well is to, I think, to put into question the idea that black writers um, in Paris at that time could be described as black expatriates rather than black exiles. There's a, there's a, a very strong strain of, of trauma that runs through this novel, especially in the flashbacks um, where he is reflecting on his, his upbringing um, in, in Philadelphia, not in the South, but, but in the North. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and at one point he's asked by uh, Babe why he's come to Paris, and Babe is a very uh, jovial kind of bon viveur, and, and, and he says, well, I, I came to Paris because um, if I hadn't left, I, I might have ended up killing someone. Yeah. I, think it, I think it also suggests that exile can result in, in, an, in an expansion of the imagination and of the, uh, the imagination of solidarity rather than a kind of inert and sterile homesickness which has been often, I think, the accusation against writers like like Richard Wright, who went to Paris, that somehow they they went there and they they lost their gift. They were they were they were uprooted, and the work that they produced was no longer of value. And I think that you know this novel, among others, urges us to rethink that complacent assumption. Absolutely. I mean, there's a moment early on, isn't there, where Babe refers to Simeon as a refugee. I think and I was the first, very... and the first part of the novel is the fugitive. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, I think we, you know, there is a, as you know, I'm sure, you know, within the sort of uh, a vogue for cultural and critical theory among African Americans currently, a great deal of attention given to the notion of fugitivity um, as a as a conceptual apparatus to interpret all kinds of um, all kinds of cultural work, but I think. The idea of, of refugees here, I mean, this this is a very early um, pronouncement uh, about the, the refugee status of African-American, you know, cultural workers um, on the road. And I, I, I guess I was very, I was very, very struck by that. Um, I've always been very struck by that you know, in, in teaching this particular book. You know, another thing that really strikes me about the stone face is the treatment of 
the Jewish question and anti-Semitism. Mm. Uh, mm. Simeon, Simeon Brown uh, becomes involved with uh, a Polish uh, Jewish survivor, Maria, who uh, is losing her sight and who aspires to become uh, an actress. I think she's a somewhat problematic character, one of the, mm -hmm. the weaker characters. Mm -hmm. But there's this um, one of the most intense scenes in the novel takes place um, at a cafe during a conversation with Simeon, Maria, and some of his Algerian friends. And uh, one of his Algerian friends um, makes an anti-Semitic remark, and, mm -hmm. and Maria says, "Well, you know, you're looking at a <clears throat> you're looking at a dirty Jew." And another friend, another of his Algerian friends then unleashes this 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 monologue which is uh about his feelings of betrayal by uh mm -hmm. algerian jews who had supported the mm -hmm. french colonial presence there are of course allusions also to the arab israeli conflict and one has a sense that these two um historic victims of the west the arabs and the jews are on a kind of have, are now on a kind of collision course um and uh it's and, and, and Gardner Smith doesn't resolve that um, to his credit. I mean, I don't think he, he's not trying to make this easier for us. He's, he's, he's I think uh, he's depicting a dilemma and a predicament that, you know, is still with us today. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's not comfortable with Manichaean um, um, uh, judgments. And I think that to be able to do what much 20th century um, theorizing about the nature of racial power and racial violence does, and to link the history of anti-Semitism and the, uh, the sort of effective potency of um, anti-Semitism and show that they're not confined only to those we most readily imagine as the um, oppressors of Jews, but that actually there are all kinds of all kinds of ways in which anti-Semitism can't be confined like that is one thing. And then to be able to, as he as he insists, really, that we that we 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 he's using a concept of racism, I suppose, implicitly, which joins those histories together as they are joined together. And they're also separated, but here they are joined together and they are seen to inform one another. Well, you know, that we find a moment like this in many other texts of, of the period. And sometimes it's, it's, it's more problematic than it seems to be for Gardner Smith. One thinks of Fanon's, um, uh, uh, you know, early description of anti-Semitism as a kind of um, family quarrel um, among whites. Although that's, of course, not the only thing he says or... I think of Cesare's view of the relationship between anti-black racism and anti-Semitism in in um, discourse and colonialism. Right. So these and, things and must... the notion that the, the Negrophobe is almost inevitably an anti-Semite. An anti-Semite. Well. Yeah, yeah. So we've got these things. I, I imagine are being kind of constantly thought through and argued over and argued about. And I think it's really bold for a book that aligns so dramatically with the Algerian force of anti-colonial. Um, resistance against French power to not um, luxuriate in the idea that this is the one sort of clean, perfect, uh, un, you know, um, sacred struggle that we can locate upon. But th those those problems and processes are alive in the centre of that, as they must be, because they have to be worked through. So we, we're not we're not given a you know an easy 
opportunity to uh, fantasize about the, um, the 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 utter nobility of this. It's you know it's well, a, no one is a, no one is a pure no one is a pure victim. Even Maria, who is a right. who is a survivor, is someone who is desperate to kind of flee into whiteness. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. that's true. No, I I agree, and I I applaud that about the book, and it, it's also you know it's also the case that. In doing this and in seeking to articulate together uh, African-American history and struggles inside the United States with a, with a diasporic perspective and what we think of as an anti-colonial or decolonial perspective, it's not as though the history of African-American resistance and African-American struggle is kind of downplayed or muted or um, you know pushed, pushed to the back. I think there's a real attempt to braid these things together in a way that is extremely un, unusual so we've got the old character who talks about slave revolts and Denmark Vesey and Gabriel's rebellion Nat Turner and so on you know I mean as well as the unfolding civil rights struggle so I, I, I think for the I've been trying it's very hard to talk about a book without absolutely spoiling it for people who haven't looked at it you're perhaps more practiced at that than I am I I just I just feel it's 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 terribly important to um to applaud the attempt to bring these things together you know you did you did you did raise a question about the novel that i wanted to ask you again again mm. about um in in i believe it was in between camps the book that is called right. against grace in the states um yeah. uh without giving too much away about uh, about uh, the plot um uh, originally gardner smith had his protagonist oh, yes. uh, go to africa and in gardner smith of course after publishing yeah. Went to Ghana. He was in Ghana for a couple of years with his family, and and his wife at the time had uh, their son there, and he uh, he he socialized with Malcolm X and William mm -hmm. uh, Mayfield and Maya Angelou and mm -hmm. got to know Kwame Nkrumah, and yet Simeon Brown uh, does not go to Africa, mm. and 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 in in your book you suggested that uh, there was something a bit half-hearted. Uh, that that uh, that that Gardner Smith had retreated from this radical vision of mm -hmm. solidarity uh, with a vision of, of kind of vision of homecoming, mm -hmm. and I'm wondering, uh, do you, do you still feel that to be the case? Because at the same time, Gardner Smith does refer to Black Americans as Americans Algerians, so he he he, he is mm -hmm. still linking mm -hmm. those histories um, and those conditions. Do, do you still feel? Uh, that Gardner yeah. Smith uh, failed to go all the way. <laughs> I, I mean, I suppose I, I think that if you really believe that the universal um, nature of these horrors and these forms of violence and cruelty and infrahumanity um, on, on, can't be contained with any particular empirical manifestation of them, then it's really unfair to su suggest that you should prioritize their undoing in your place of origin and i think so i wouldn't i wouldn't feel so strongly about that now and i think there's been some material emerging about about the role of the agents and the editors in in changing a number of these not just gardner smith's own manuscript richard wright richard wright richard wright particularly notably a victim of this process and that's always been strange to me i mean we know I suppose thanks to Frances Stoner Saunders and the work she did on the kind of cultural Cold War, we have a very strong version of this in relation to certain publications and authors and um, cultural workers. But what we don't really have is a version of that that speaks to the, the process of decolonization 
and the management of of um, publications by African American and other Black writers. And I, I sort of, I do wonder about the role. I mean, you mentioned Wright, well, of course, Asner and the others who were involved in managing Wright's career were, were particularly, I think, damaging. Although the travel books that he produced out of their uh, refusal to publish his fiction are an amazing uh, resource and full of insights to look at the period we've been talking about. But I, I do wonder about the role of agents and publishers and editors in, in massaging and sculpting a particular set of particular repertory of of um, of minor voices, you know, in this in this period, as the category of writing by by African Americans and other Black writers becomes something that can be can be sellable. And I think that was probably particularly the case when Black writers like Richard Wright and in his book The Outsider or mm. or Gardner Smith decided they were not going to stand their lane. They they mm. were going to mm. explore. Uh, subjects uh, outside the United, you know, outside the United States, in a in a more philosophical or or, or political dimension, that they weren't going to write classical protest novels about conditions in the states. And I think that there, there probably was more resistance. Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, I'm Savage Holiday is not my favorite uh, book of Richard Wright's, but I think that in his case, you know, he he resolves it in part through writing about white characters and uh, you know. I mean, there as, are many, as, as, of course, as Baldwin did in Giovanni's room. As Baldwin did exactly. So there are there are a number of things to be said about that as a as a kind of attempt to resolve these pressures too. I think. Now you said earlier that uh, that, that Gardner Smith, um, you know, is working here as a novelist, not as a reporter. But what's clear is that he was a very serious reporter. And what really, because you know, what strikes me about this novel is just the sensitivity and nuance of his account of France at the time and his understanding mm -hmm. of. Of, of Algerian politics. We have Arab mm -hmm. characters. We have Kabil Berber characters. Um, mm -hmm. He writes with, with great insight about women and their hopes of the Algerian revolution. I mean, these yeah. the two women who, whom he meets say that uh, thanks to the Algerian revolution, they have succeeded in emancipating themselves. Exactly. That was, of yeah. course, the hope. And Fanon wrote yeah. about that in Algeria Unveiled. That did not turn out to be the case after the war. But we, we, we have this, you know, this sense of the possibility and potential of that of that revolution as imagined by, you know, young people who uh, rally to the ranks of the FLN. So yeah. it's um, yeah. it's quite a journalist. It's in a way it's a journalistic achievement as well. As well. Yeah, no, I, I can see that. And I think I think that is one of the things that makes it worth engaging with from our own um, historical um, predicament. Um, it's not. It's not just a, cu a curiosity. I think. I think that the, there is a, there's something that we might learn actually f from allowing these complicating dynamics to once again ventilate some of the more confining aspects of critical perspectives that make histories of trauma and horror the exclusive property of particular castes of victims in ways that are incommunicable to others. So I don't know if you'd call that um, a reporter's work or a, or a literary one, but the the attempt to articulate and to communicate these things across um, cultural and linguistic and other historical lines that we've told repeatedly are uh, impermeable or incorrigible um, is is the achievement of this book for me. Um, I, I think there's a passage that you wanted to read from late in the novel. Yeah, yeah, thank you. 
Um, it's really, it comes just after his epiphany about the, um, the aching eye and, uh, uh, and the universal fusion of this, um, of this stone face. And he's woken up in the midst of the Algerian crowd that has been herded into the, um, into the sports ground for uh, processing. Simeon was in a group of some 200 men and women who were seated in a corner of the room. A man next to Simeon smiled and spoke to him in Arabic. Simeon said in French, I don't speak Arabic. Are you African? No, American. The man pursed his lips and arched his brows in surprise. For a moment, he seemed skeptical. Then he said, good. They sat for hours on the damp, cold floor, changing positions frequently to relieve their aching muscles. From time to time, the women raised their voices in a shrill you-you wail again. Simeon thought of what Ahmed had told him, how they, he had never felt as happy as when he found himself with a guerrilla unit fighting against parachutists. Simeon understood now what Ahmed meant. At around one o'clock, the police came to them with pots of stiff, lukewarm mashed potato with ground meat mixed into it, which served as lunch. There were no plates or, or forks, and each man was served in his cupped hands. They all ate hungrily. A man in civilian clothes wove in and out among the prisoners, looking at the faces. He paused and frowned when he saw Simeon. He walked over to him. Are you an Arab? he asked. Simeon shook his head. The Algerians looked at him. What are you, African? Simeon hesitated a moment, then said, American. Still frowning, the man turned and walked away. So I think I like these questions. I like these questions. I mean, you know, they're very familiar questions. What, what are you? I Who like are you? That, yeah, that Simeon's, you know, um, body refuses to disclose the truths of its kind of racial positioning to the casual observer you know he has to be interrogated about it this is also i think part of of unsettling the character of unsettling the habits of perception and repetition that keep the kind of racial world uh, functioning right and it's very and it's very unsettling to him i mean i remember there i remember a, a scene in the book where um he's walking with with his friend ahmed um and they pass by a police station and ahmed says usually i'm terrified passing a police station, um, you know, this is 1960, 61 in, in Paris, it's a, a period of, um, of kind of urban warfare, actually, mm -hmm. um, the war in France, and, you know, the ratissage and police sweeps were very common, and, and, and he says, why, why aren't you frightened now? And Ahmed says, well, I'm, I'm here with you, you know, and I'm here with someone respectable. And, and he said, how does it feel to be respectable? And, and, and Simeon says, well, it feels very odd. He's, what does it feel like to have, to have that kind of power, even odder? <laughs> and uh, it's, this is not a position that Simeon ever imagined occupying, that of power, that of respectability, that of a kind of, you know, honorary whiteness in a way, yes. if we're using that language. And, and I think the question that it raises for, for Simeon and for Gardner-Smith is, well, then what do I owe? Like, what are my what are my ethical responsibilities in this position? Is my ethic is it is it enough for me just to be here having fled the terror of American racism? Can I just enjoy life as Maria counsels him to do? Can I can I just forget? And and no, something in him doesn't allow him to forget. Maybe it it's lodged in that memory that we we, we, we described that that memory of the chase. And of his own feelings that he had been complicit in the rape, 
perhaps that he's somehow more sensitive than I mean, maybe that's, you know, an indication, but he's someone who clearly can't accept simply being comfortable and being on the side of those being being on the side of domination. He's something in him rebels against that. Yes, and I think there's alongside the rape scene or just after it, there's the voice of the of the ancestor, the paternal mm. ancestor who's mm. custodian of the custodian the repository of the memories of struggle and resistance that that define the um, you know the political life of, of African American communities in Simeon's memory. So they're they're the, those two traces really that guide us. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry, and some well less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs, no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We, we have a few questions. We have a little bit of time. Uh, one, one of okay. the questions is whether uh, Gardner Smith would have been aware of the Battle of Algiers. This novel came out three years before the Battle of Algiers, yeah. although perhaps this is the moment to, to, to mention that, you know, this week we've, we've lost uh, uh, Sadi Yassef, who um, mm -hmm. was one of the leaders of the Battle of Algiers and then went on to co-write and star um, in the film made by Gila Pontecorvo. And, and we also lost um, Melvin Van Peebles, who... Um, made a, a wonderful film uh, in the mid-60s um, called Story of a Three-Day Pass, La Permission, which is a similarly disenchanted view of, uh, of a Black American experience um, in Paris. But, but, but certainly uh, Gardner Smith would have been aware of um, the Battle of Algiers uh, when, when it came out and when it was banned in France. Um, another question um, is someone would like to know more about the chase. Well, I think we've, we've I think we've, how would you classify the novel as a genre? Would you call this a protest novel? What do you think, Paul? Uh, well, that quarrel is a, this <laughs> opens the door onto a very difficult set of questions. <laughs> Adam, you're laughing because obviously, the, the, you know, whether Baldwin, Baldwin said he didn't get that right. So, so, so the idea that Richard Wright in producing the, figure of bigger Thomas as a sort of savage predator, uh, a sort of superhuman predator uh, on white womanhood, you know, doesn't count as a, a protest novel. Native Son doesn't count as a protest novel. And of course, according to Baldwin, behind Native Son and the, its sort of sentimental architecture, which is kind of partially disguised by the kind of communist verbiage of the- Uncle Tom's Cabin. Yeah, stands the figure of Harriet Beecher Stowe, you know, <laughs> wagging her finger at the world. 
and and praying, you know, in between her admonitions. I, so I, I would say by those criteria, this is not. I, to, me it's, more, to me it's, me it's more of a building's roman. It's a coming into yeah. consciousness. Yes, yes. It's, I absolutely agree with that, that this is about Simeon's development. It's a novel of development, building's roman. Another question, how would uh, how would I, familiar with the ideas and theories of the Tunisian writer Albert Memmi, apply those to the views of the Jewish-Arab situation and those these colonial conflicts explored in Gardner-Smith perhaps less dismissively than in the hastier analyses of Fanon and Césaire made of anti-Semitism? I actually want to stand up for Césaire and Fanon. I don't think that they were hasty in their discussions of anti-Semitism. In fact, uh, uh, Fanon's analysis of racism owed a great deal to Sartre's book, Anti-Semite and Jew. And I, I do think that that passage that you mentioned about the family quarrel, typically taken out of context, I think actually mm -hmm. thought quite deeply about anti-Semitism. And, and Césaire, uh, I think, uh, took the issue very, very seriously as well, while, while noting, of course, that Europeans uh, became indignant and outraged and, of course, and then guilty over the uh, mass extermination of Jews even though similar methods um, on a less industrial scale had been applied to people of color by the colonial empires. That, that's, the, I think, the argument that he was making in the discourse on colonialism. Uh, Memi is a, is a, is a fascinating uh, figure, Tunisian uh, Jewish writer who uh, wrote a very important book on colonialism, um, Portrait of the Colonizer, Portrait of the Colonized. Um, and and and, uh, and a, a masterly uh, first novel, uh, Pillar of Salt. I think that um, Memmi certainly shared a taste for uh, for paradox and for the complex ways in which racial histories overlap and collide in a colonial situation. I don't think that his politics were the same as Gardner Smith's. But I think in sensibility, there are there's perhaps a certain comparison to be made. I'm wondering what you think, uh, Paul. Yeah, I can I can I can see that. I mean, I was thinking as you began to talk about something slightly different, um, which has really got to do with the fact that Claude Lanzmann is sitting in the cafe as well, right, with them, and he's and so the the question of how one represents these horrors, what it is to seek to represent them, what the, what forms literary aesthetic cultural, you know, what, what, what co corresponds to a creative, respectful representation of these horrors? How is that going to work in literature? And I think that there are things about this book which are attempts, preliminary attempts, but nonetheless stimulating and interesting attempts to respond to that question of how do we represent these things which are supposedly ineffable, uh, sublime, which exceed language. How, how are we going to do that? Mm. And, you know, for the, the, the clunking, for all the clunkiness of Simeon's blinding and his, um, um, you know, his um, operations as a painter, which we learn so little about, um, I think that, that that's here because the question of, of, of how these things can be communicated, how they should be represented and, and, and what the ethics of those choices might add up to things that Gardner Smith sort of identifies very, very early on in, 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 a, in a way that I think is worth applauding. Right. And I think and I think this clunkiness, too, is not simply a reflection of um, of, of his um, technical abilities. It's also a reflection of just the, the complexity of the subject matter and his determination mm -hmm. to be, you know, what Edward Said called contrapuntal. 
and to mm -hmm. set these histories beside each other, not to attempt to resolve them, but to oh, also yeah. remain very sensitive to each people's history of oppression. I mean, in a sense, uh, Lonsman is almost the opposite because he mm -hmm. begins as someone who, you know, is uh, very alert to the uh, anguish uh, of, of the colonized. He visited Fanon in, in Tunis. Um, mm -hmm. Um, and then essentially he developed a, a strangely Fanonian kind of Zionism in mm -hmm. which the only, mm -hmm. only case of oppression that mattered to him was the, uh, was the, was the persecution of Jews. Other people yes, yes. ceased to matter to him. So he's, yes. he's almost, a, I think, a negative example. No, that, that's true. And I mean, obviously, Amari is on that same, same path. But I, I think that they take different aesthetic if that's the right word or anti-aesthetic choices that 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 was the point that i was that i was getting i wasn't it wasn't really a political point about landsman although you know he's in the room too he is, he is. in that he's in the cafe you know the last thing i wanted to ask you paul has to do with the impact of world war ii you know gardner smith felt mm. that the experience of world war ii was really critical to the kind of internationalist liberation consciousness of so many returning black soldiers and of course mm -hmm. this was also true for algerians but there's an and, and there is an algerian character in this novel who said look i fought with the free french and then i came home yes. algeria and we were still living under colonialism and and the and the, and of course in 1945 on v-day algerians held up the algerian flag and there were yep. skirmishes and tens of yep. thousands of algerians were murdered by the French, the, the massacres yeah. of Saitif and Guelma. So yeah, well, and of course the same thing's happening in Senegal too, isn't it? I mean, there's uh, the camp at Tiaroye, you know, and the the history that's kind of recovered by Semben Usman um, is is also is also that same story. I forgot your question though, Adam. The, 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 the way that the Second World War, I mean, Gardner Smith. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the way that the Second World War results in this this kind of internationalization of black american political consciousness as it, mm. as it as it was for so many people from the colonized world yeah absolutely well i i think i don't know that the second world war is 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 unique in that regard because it seems to me that wherever african americans have sought to leverage their citizenship against their military service we find that pattern and you know i mean du bois in his editorial for the crisis in world war one you know i mean he's sitting in versailles after the war because he thinks that there's something about the that military service that's going to guarantee the acquisition of a kind of higher better version of a u.s citizenship which is not kind of color-coded and he you know very rapidly comes to see the the limitations of that i mean Think of Korea also, because, you know, I don't think, I think I'm right in saying that the U.S. military blood supplies were only desegregated during the Korean War. They were still letting white soldiers die in World War II because they weren't going to put black plasma and platelets into their bodies when they were wounded. Um, you know, um, Spency Love, I think, has written about that in her, uh, in the book about the history of um, of, of the blood uh, uh, blood banks and so on and and uh, racial segregation so so i think for me i think that the shift really comes comes with korea but it is in this process it is in this time and it, and of course there's so much to be said about vietnam and the moment self-consciously you know with the as we're told by you know in bloods and other uh, the extraordinary um, oral history of, of African-American right. service in Vietnam, where, you know, thrashing through the, the vegetation, you come to a sign written in English and says, what the fuck are you doing here? 
<laughs> you know, we don't have any quarrel with you. You know, go home and get out of this because it's not your it's not your fight. You know, so 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 I think I would I'd want to stretch that. I think I can't blame Gardner Smith for 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 seeing uh, World War Two um, in this. It was his, it was his, it was his war after all because he he'd served in the U.S. military and he'd found himself in Berlin as an occupying soldier, although not, of course, as a combatant. So so I think there's a larger conversation to be had about the attempts to leverage leverage military service against or leverage citizenship against military service and, and of course that's still a, still and, a question what we, there. and what we can't forget too is the experience of coming home and and yeah. uh, returning to uh anti-black race riots and massacres yeah. and violence well yeah i mean this is that that's the point that's made by the the nazis who've come back to berlin who've been in prison camps in north carolina and places like that you know i think Jesse Jackson's father also in Jesse's telling of it narrates the same kind of problem. You know, you, 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 African-American soldier were guarding us when we were prisoners of war and we could walk in and get a glass of water and you couldn't. So mm. what's the nature of this war that you're that you're betting will win you the citizenship you've been denied? Well, uh, Tyler Stovall, wonderful historian who wrote uh, Paris Noir about Black mm -hmm. Americans in Paris, and who also wrote about uh, the Stone Face, mm -hmm. has just published a book called White Freedom, which I think uh -huh. speaks to some of these naughty issues that you've just mentioned. And you know, it's been a real pleasure talking to you uh, about this novel, Paul. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Well, thank you, Adam, and thank you for all the work that you've done to bring this, you know, this uh, novel this important if incomplete novel back into discussion because I think there's so much to be gained from having a, a rigorous and uh, a deep conversation about it today in the 21st century. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hi. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode, and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.